Would you open your Bible to the first chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews? And let's begin with prayer. Father, we are delighted to confess that this is the inspired word of your author. Inspired by the inbreathing of the work of the Spirit in his mind and heart. Urging his pen to record what you wished him to record. But we appeal to the presence of that same Spirit to illuminate what he first inspired. Our prayer, O Lord, is that you help us understand the deep riches of what has been written here. And we ask that in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now I'd like to begin by having the first four verses read. And Benji, if you are prepared to do that, would you please read Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, and we will follow as you read. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, many of your versions may have at least two or three sentences in that section. It is, in fact, a long one-sentence statement, a very long one-sentence statement in the original Greek. And you will notice that uh, that is supported by the subordinate relative clauses. Now, when I say relative clauses, I'm talking about the relative pronoun, which is used three times in this section. You will notice it in verse 2, where it follows the word son, whom he appointed. Whom is a relative pronoun, and that is a subordinate relative clause. The next relative pronoun occurs at the end of that second verse, and you'll notice through whom he also made the world. Now, the third relative pronoun is not as obvious in your English versions because your English versions don't properly translate the Greek. But verse 3 begins with who being. That's the literal reading of the Greek, and that is the third relative clause. And so the stringing out of the three relative clauses in the original Greek text is a stringing out of subordinate definitions of the Son. And it is an extension of that definition or that extension of his characterization, which goes through to the end of verse 4. So 
the Greek text is one long sentence. Your English translators, with the exception of the King James Version, which got it right, and the American Standard Version of 1901, which also got it right, have attempted to break it up for your modern reading pleasure. In other words, break up the long clauses, break up the long sentence, break it down into smaller sentences. But here, we really want to savor why our author has penned this extended description. As Augustine calls it, the exordium. As Theodore of Cyrus calls it, the proemium. And this introductory verse, this introductory sentence is the preamble, the preface, the introduction, the proem to this magnificent epistle. And it demonstrates in many ways the uh, genius of the author. It will be demonstrated in other ways that we'll look at in a moment, not only in terms of how he has strung this sentence out by simply expanding his description of the Son of God, but also how he actually articulates it, what literary style and skill he incorporates into this long Greek sentence. Now, you'll notice in your handout that I have given you the Greek text of the first two lines, actually all of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. I have done that on purpose, not as if to uh, insult those of you who don't read Greek, but that you may see something, uh, even with your eye, if you don't read the Greek, that will kind of jump out at you. So, you will notice from my highlight of the Greek letter pi, uh, remembering all back to your, your plane geometry days or your mathematical days when you saw that little symbol pi r squared for the area of a circle, uh, here you see that Greek letter pi highlighted, and you will notice that it occurs five times in that first line. Now, that device is duplicated in the Vulgate, or the Novum Vulgatum, that is the Latin translation of this line, with three successive M's. Now, this pattern of successive, successive initial repetition of a letter is called alliteration. And so, whether it's in the Greek with the five-fold P sound, or whether it's in the Latin with the three-fold M sound, we have an alliterative stylistic device here. Please get a copy of the handouts. Please get a copy of the handouts. All right. This is the first instance, in fact, from the outset. It is the first instance of what we noted in our background discussions about the literary skill and the educational background of our author. This man is a literary genius. Granted, he's working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he brings a lot of baggage to the task. He has been well-trained and well-educated. And this is the first example that you see of that high-class Greek stylistic background and rhetorical education. Now, as if he had not given us an alliterative embarrassment of riches in that first line, he also uses a phonetic pattern which is quite 
which is almost a rhyme. I have underlined the endings of uh, words in that first line, and those endings have uh, vowel-sounding, vowel-consonant-sounding uh, emphases. Uh, os, I, os, I, ois, ois. Notice the repetitive duplication of the same vowel sounds. Now, this uh, paradigm or this uh, 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 observation indicates that our author is used to assonance, that is, repetition of the same sound. Now, he doesn't do it in order to make a poetic rhyme, but he does, does it in order to strike a cadence. Now, obviously, you can't see this in the English, and that's another good reason that a person who is going to preach to you or teach you the New Testament or the Old Testament, for that matter, must be trained in the original languages to at least be aware of potential detection. That is, a capacity to look at it, see it, perhaps notice it, and uh, then ask yourself the question why it's there. It is here. For stylistic purposes, it's here for literary purposes, it's here for the purposes of the cadence. Remember that most Christian congregations in the first century would not have had a copy of this. They would have somebody reading it to them. And consequently, as the person read it, they would hear these repeated sounds, the repeated P and the repeated uh, uh, rhyming uh, endings of the words that I have underscored and highlighted for you. Any questions on that? Now, I want you to notice the last Greek word uh, in that line. And I'll ask our professor of Greek to translate that last Greek word. It's pronounced huyo. The last Greek word in the Greek text. Huyo. Huyo. Yes, in the sun. The last word is the Greek word for son, son of God, in this case. Notice that that is the last word at the end of the clause that introduces him. The next three clauses are relative clauses of a subordinate style. So at the end of his opening thought, he places the name, the son, as the final word. Now, I want you to keep that in mind and turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. And Ben, do you have it? Would you read it for us? Therefore, O brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right, once again, the English translation is not true to the Greek. It is an adequate translation. But I want you to notice that the last clause in that verse, which Ben read, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, is actually in the Greek, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. The last word in the clause is the name of the Son of God, Jesus, in the original Greek. All right, let's turn to chapter 12, verse Two. 
And Art, if you have it, would you mind reading for us? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Stop right there. All right, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But once again, that is not a proper translation of the Greek. Granted, it is a readable English translation, but the Greek reads, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus. The last name in the clause, before the relative who, which follows. Notice the relative clause, which follows there. The last name in the clause is the name of the Son of God. And finally, the famous benediction from the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 20. And Mike, if you have it, would you read it for us? 1320. 1320, thank you. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. All right, now the last word in that clause, which ends as Mike read, Jesus our Lord, is in the Greek, even our Lord Jesus. There are 19 instances in this epistle in which the writer ends a clause or a phrase with the name of Jesus, the Son, or Lord. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see why he's constructing his clauses that way? Do you understand what is behind this pattern This brilliant theological pattern from the very first verse or the second verse in his epistle to the concluding benediction at the end of this epistle, at the end of a line or a clause, he fixes your eyes steadfastly on Jesus, the Son of God. Is there any other subject to this epistle to which you are driven, directed, drawn? There is none. To yourself, to your vaunted merits, to your works of deserving, to your being somehow commendable to God. I don't read any verse in which the name of a man concludes the clause as if there is focus on a creature. No, the focus is upon the Son and the Father, Jesus, the Savior, the Lord of glory. And from the beginning, he puts your eyes upon the end, upon the goal upon the person who is at the climax of his letter. Any questions about that? All right, so you won't be able to see it in your English Bible all the time. Occasionally you will. As you can see, I pointed it out, it occurs in the Greek text. But nonetheless, it is a stylistic device, a literary device. It's a literary theological device. 
that this inspired author uses, and he uses with great purpose. Now, one of the things that uh, my students are used to is uh, my uh, devotion to looking for structure in a particular part of the Bible. And uh, those of you who were with us uh, last year with the Life of David series realize that that is a kind of M.O. that is stamped on my psyche. Well, we have to ask that question here with the first chapter of Hebrews. Is there any structure here? Is there a literary structure here? Is there a pattern that is present in this opening chapter? And so I make the following suggestion, though it's not peculiar to me. Others have noticed it as well. The verse, uh, the third verse of this exordium, in which the phrase right hand is mentioned, followed in verse 4 by the word angels. And then in verse 5, by the pattern of anadiplosis, uh, or what we might call in French, les mots crochets, or crocheted words, and those of you who are, uh, those women of you, and maybe even some of you men out there who crochet, but uh, those women of you who crochet will notice uh, the direct borrowing of that word from French, and you know what it means. It means to hook threads together, <clears throat> and that's exactly what les mots crochet, crocheted words in French means, refers to this doubling up pattern, or hooking a word on its previous appearance. Or with the term anadiplosis, uh, which is a Greek word, we have that prefix ana, A-N-A. And that may uh, raise a question in the history of theology about a group of people that were anas, okay? The Anabaptists. And so now you know why the 16th century Anabaptists were called Anabaptists. Because you know what the prefix ana means. And it means what? Anyone? Again. So the Anabaptists baptized themselves again, and consequently they became uh, known by that moniker uh, because they didn't accept the infant baptism that had been bestowed upon them in their Roman Catholic background. They rebelled against the Catholic Church with other Protestants in the Reformation, but they were the group, they were the bracket of the Reformation, which was called the Radical Reformation. In the 16th century, the Anabaptists in many cases were extremely radical. Radical in terms of theology, radical in terms of social customs, radical in terms of attacking the power structures, even with arms. Now, some of them were pacifists, but in the, in the outbreak of the Reformation, they distinguished themselves from the Lutherans, and from the Reformed or Calvinistic. In fact, they prided themselves in calling themselves the more radical Reformation. Well, there is the etymology of the term Anna as applied to Anabaptist at the time of the Reformation. All right, then moving down to verse 13, we have the second appearance of that term right hand, as you'll notice in the quotation from the psalm. And consequently, we may have a possible structural outline of the first chapter of Hebrews. Now, I say possible because uh, the, the, the pattern here doesn't integrate the whole chapter, and that gives me a pause. 
the second thing is that the vocabulary of right hand is not exact. In other words, the word is not exactly duplicated. The root is duplicated, but the, root, the word itself isn't. I'm a little suspicious of type of things like that. However, I throw it out there because it is a possible uh, structure of this entire first chapter. Which brings us to the focus of our evening, namely chapter 1, verse 1 to 2a. What I printed in Greek at the top of the page, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son or in a son or in son, period, because it's anarthrous. <coughs> which suggests, as you'll notice, that there is no article before Huyo in the Greek text that this son is unique. He is singular. There is none other like him. He is not the son. He is not a son among many. He is son, period. None other of his character. All right, well, what in these uh, in this verse and clause of the second verse, what is our author describing? Don't worry about ruining your reputation. You have no reputation to be ruined. You can only be wrong, and that's all right. People have come to these uh, meetings uh, for years and have been wrong, and they've survived. They're still alive. And some of you have been in that position, and you're prospering uh, by God's grace. Uh, I'm delighted to have you with us, so venture an answer. Well, in that case. Art? <laughs> God speaking. God speaking. <clears throat> All right. Uh, that's not exactly what I wanted, but you're in the ballpark. It's not a home run, Art, but in the ballpark. All right. Now, when you think of God speaking, what do you think of? You're still on a hot plate. Hot seat. Hot plate, seat, whichever. It's hot. Go ahead. He's describing the situations in which God... I'm not interested in situation. I'm interested in what you started with, God speaking. Now, you give me a synonym for God speaking. No, 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 no. I want to hear from Art. I would say the same thing, communicating. He's communicating. Well, since you borrowed that, then I'm going to have to ask her what she would say. Communicating to man. How? Through his creation. Uh, in former times, he did it through his... Process. No, no. What, what, what do you mean by communicate? Give me another synonym. Revealing himself. All right. I do want revelation, but that is number two on your outline. You lucked out by just falling into it. But I still want number one. What is he talking about? I heard it. Teaching. His word. He's talking about the word of God, isn't he? Okay, my theological abbreviation, the theta there, means God. Now, I want an adjective with revelation. I want an adjective with revelation. Divine. What's that? Divine. Divine is the word I want. Very good. Divine revelation. Now, I want another word for, or whether phrase... For what he's talking about here. He's talking about the word of God. We can also say this is divine revelation. But if you're a Vossian, what's he talking about? Stephen, you're becoming a Vossian. What's he talking about? 
Before I ask the expert Boasians in the audience, I'll give the novice a chance. Is he talking the process? Is that what you're looking for? No, I'm looking for another term, a Vossian term for word of God or divine revelation. What am I thinking of, Pete? <laughs> yeah, you whipped ass too, <laughs> I have to start with a senior member of the faculty. <laughs> ask Benji. I always ask him. <laughs> All right, Benji. Uh, he's describing the history of Revelation. No. Scott? Eschatology? No. Nice try. You, you always know my favorite word. All right. <laughs> I am referring to a title of one of Voss's books. No. <laughs> what? Disclosure? Yes, the divine self-disclosure. From Voss's self-disclosure of... Jesus. All right. Now, all of these are synonyms, but they are all referring to God's speech in terms of his word, in terms of that being a revelation. But we put the adjective in there because we want to emphasize the fact that it is divine revelation. But understand that the word of God, which is a revelation, is not an abstraction. It is a self-disclosure. That is, God is showing himself. He is showing his person and his character. This is not mere abstract propositional doctrine. This is not mere catechetical instruction, question and answer. That is valid, but God is doing more in revealing himself. He is showing us his face. He is showing us his face. He is disclosing his wonderful, loving character, nature, being, etc. So I want you to understand that this is not a book of automatic propositions per se. It's a book of self-disclosure from a God who communicates those propositions as if he were talking to you face to face. You are in God's living room when you are reading this book. You are sitting before the fireplace talking to him as friend with friend. He is speaking And you are responding because you're reading his speech. Well, God is giving his revelation in what? Scripture, the Bible, okay, in his word. Is there any other revelation, Mary Lou? Is there any other revelation? Oh, yes. His son. I'm going to say that comes through the word. Is there any other revelation? Okay, can you help her? Is there any other revelation but this? Is there any other revelation of God except the Bible? I, I would say no. Are you a, are you a fan of uh, Papa Haydn? Yes. You know Franz Joseph? No. Well, you know about him? A little bit. Franz Joseph Haydn? What's his greatest piece of music? 
Which is greatest oratorial piece of music? Creation. Yes, Loretta. Loretta's helping you. Okay? And in, in the creation that Haydn, right, that great oratorial, uh, what's the most famous chorus? Loretta? Yes. Thank, thank you, Kay. And where did he get that idea? He writes this great chorus. The heavens are telling the glory. Okay? And where did he get that? Did he just invent that? Did I just pop that up out of his head, Loretta? Did he just pop up out of his head? With his eyes? The sky? Yes, but the, the words that he uses to describe what he sees in the sky, did he just pop up those words out of his head, Kay? Yeah, what part of the Bible? What Psalm? You're doing well. What Psalm? Psalm 19. What verse? What? I don't know. The first verse. Yes, the first verse. And it's in the Trinity hymnal to boot. Number 117. All right. So, this other revelation is in the created order. Or as Loretta said, he looked up. To the sky, he looked out above him. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the creation is revealing God's glory. So Psalm 19, verse 1, among other verses in the Bible, is underscoring the fact that there is a creation of God in, uh, there is a revelation of God in creation. And so we take the classic language in Latin, revelatio generalis, and revelatio specialis, right? You can figure that out even if you don't know a stitch of Latin. General revelation and special revelation. Now, what is the difference between the two? General revelation is given to all men in general, to all men universally. The heavens declare the glory of God, and every man on the face, every woman, every child on the face of the globe can read it. There is no song or language where that voice is not heard. Nowhere on the face of the earth is God's voice silenced. In the face of a human creature who can see the glorious heavens. All right. So that general revelation is universal. All mankind, including women and children. When I say mankind, I'm talking about a collective. I'm not I'm not being biased against the women in the audience. I'm including you in. It's a generic term. All right. All right. So there is no uh, human being of either sex anywhere on the face of the earth that is not a recipient of revelatio generalis. It is universal. But what about revelatio specialis? This is a revelation which is given to special people or particularly given to some and not all. Or was the Old Testament revelation given to the Chinese? To the Argentines, to the Canadians. All right, to ask a question is to answer it. You understand that the revelation of the Old Testament was given to a particular people, a special people. It was particularly given to Israel. And so the scriptures of the New Testament have been given 
to the church, not just in Israel, but now uh, Jewish and Gentile believers, but not to all the world, which is the reason we have Wycliffe Bible translators, in order to encourage the translation of the special revelation of God in as many human languages as possible. A very commendable work. All right, now, synonyms for revelatio generalis and revelatio specialis. Revelatio naturalis and revelatio supernaturalis. Natural revelation, which is coming to all mankind by the testimony of nature. But supernatural revelation, which is coming from God's special supernatural word recorded in the scriptures. A revelation which comes out of the divine arena, out of God's own sacred mouth, or as Calvin would say, the sacred lisps of Almighty God. Supernatural revelation is a distinctive Orthodox Christian notion. That is, that the Bible, or the Word of God, Old and New Testament alike, <clears throat> does not come by natural processes. It comes by God supernaturally speaking through his inspired messengers into time and space history. So, classically, we have the duplex revelatio dei, or the duplex cognitio dei. You can figure out duplex revelatio, duplex meaning what? Anyone? Twofold. Twofold. <clears throat> the twofold revelation of God... <clears throat> Duplex cognitio dei. Cognitio? Anyone? Knowledge. Twofold knowledge of God. So, we have a knowledge of God which comes in one of two ways. <clears throat> Natural or supernatural revelation. General or special revelation. And that places us in the crosshairs of the modern discussion of biblical revelation. And it places us on playground, better the battlefield, of the modern discussion of revelation itself. What is it? All theological orthodoxy believes the following about revelation. Revelation is a top-down phenomena, an above-to-below reality. It is divine revelation. It comes from his arena. It comes from his eternal lips into time and space history. God reveals his thoughts of man, Christ, Old and New Testament religious drama. It is God revealing from the top above
from heaven to the earth to man below. But all theological liberalism, all theological liberalism believes that revelation must be enclosed in single quotes. Why? Because revelation is man's thoughts about God. All liberalism says it is a down-up phenomena, not a top-down. It is a below-above phenomena. It is not an above-below phenomena. All theological liberalism says that revelation, in quotes, is man's religious ideas about God, Christ, Old and New Testament religious ideas. In other words, revelation for all liberalism is man-centered and man-originated. I don't care if Karl Barth can talk about revelation as the word of God. Ultimately, as Cornelius Van Til has shown, Barth has no clothes on this point. He is ultimately an anthropocentric liberal. He is a modernist. He's just a new modernist. He can use orthodox vocabulary, but he's using orthodox vocabulary with 19th century liberal liberal meaning. So it makes no difference whether it's classic 19th century liberalism of the German Schleiermacher, post-Schleiermacher variety. It makes no difference whether it's the 20th century neo-Orthodox liberalism of the Bart, Bruner, Tillich variety. It makes no difference whether it's the post-neo-Orthodox or the post-modernist liberalism. It is all the same. They all believe when you strip away the presuppositions, when you remove the facade of the vocabulary, when you remove the clothes of the language behind which they hide themselves, it is all man-originated, man-directed, and man-oriented. So that God is simply re-imaged in the image of man. Aha, and now you understand the re-imaging movement in the modern, particularly liberal church circles, re-imaging God in contemporary style. Well, our author is not talking about revelation in single quotes. He is talking about orthodox revelation. He is an orthodox believer. That is what he is announcing and proclaiming in this magnificent exordium. And consequently, if you've always believed that about Revelation, namely that Revelation is God communicating with you, God really communicating with you, then you're thinking like the writer of Hebrews is thinking. And this verse reinforces your thinking. It supports your thinking. It endorses your thinking. And it means you're not a liberal. I hope. I hope. And if any liberal ever stands in your pulpit and says, listen for the word of God, you'll know right away that he's not orthodox. You'll know right away what a difference a preposition makes. Listen for the word of God. 
It's in there somewhere, but you've got to pick it out. Or it has to become God's word in some existential encounter as you hear it. All right, well, whatever the variety of the reduction, all liberalism is reductionistic. Reducing the word of God and divine revelation to man's level and man's origin. Any questions about that? The winds of this liberal doctrine of revelation are abroad, not just in the mainstream liberal churches. It is beginning to infect the so-called evangelical churches. We are now finding that in those churches which 30 years ago held to a very strong doctrine of divine revelation and the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God are now beginning to talk like 19th century liberals or early 20th century neo-Orthodox theologians. That is the insidious character of liberalism. Evangelicals just can't stand to be behind the times. As the Johnny-come-latelys in theology, they want to be part of the culture in which they live. And so they will crucify their past convictions in order to be part of the club today. And if the evangelicals are already starting to slip, can the so-called reformed be far behind? Oh, 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 Peter Enns and Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Can he be far behind? Or will the vigilance of the pew just simply sit back and say, Well, we like our pastor. Our church is sound. We're orthodox in our little part of the world. Don't bother me about what's going on outside in the broad theological environment. Because in 20 years, I don't care what my grandchildren are listening to. It may be sooner than that, but I guarantee you, the next generation isn't going to think about Revelation the way you necessarily think about it, if the trends continue across the scope of modern Christian conservatism. When Harold Lenzel wrote his book, The Battle for the Bible, back in the 80s, he was sounding the trumpet on a defection that was occurring inside the Evangelical Theological Society. A society of which I was a member once, and in order to become a member, you had to sign a statement every year that you believed in the inerrancy of the scriptures in the autographer. And Linzel, who was a member of that organization, as I was, began to notice at the annual meeting that a lot of people running around who had signed that statement and didn't believe it. It's like people that subscribe to Westminster Confession with their fingers crossed. Yeah, the issue of integrity in subscription <clears throat> lies behind this whole matter and is a mare's nest. But I'm alerting you to the fact that there is a seething undercurrent of progressivism 
in conservative Christianity on this very point. Karl Barth is the most popular theologian at Calvin Theological Seminary and is becoming the most popular theologian at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Who would ever thunk it? Who would ever have thunk it? And if that's what's going on at Calvin and at Wheaton, then what's going on elsewhere in the college and seminary world? As the evangelical world tries to catch up to the 1960s in the mainline liberal churches when they were all Bardians and yet have passed way beyond that. But the evangelicals are always the Johnny-come-latelys, always catching up to the fad that is dead. All right. On to the next question here. How is the author articulating his description of Revelation? He is doing it by expressing the relation of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, how do you know that? How do you know that from what you have, what you're reading in front of you? Ben? Okay, I understand what you mean by contrast. I would prefer the term he's expressing a relationship. Okay? Now, how, how do you know he's expressing this relationship? What in that verse tells you that? You're right. You're right. Now, I want you to give me the specifics of how you know you're right. Point to me, point me to the text. Okay? But he's talking about the relationship between the Old and New Testament. So, very good, very good. You know that he's expressing this relationship because he refers to the prophets through whom the Old Testament revelation came and his son through whom the New Testament revelation has come. All right. Now, this uh, sequence of spoke and has spoken is indicating that this revelation is in the prophets and in the Son. And as a result of being in the prophets and in the Son, it is in what? The Word. True. But this continuum that he's describing here, what kind of a continuum is it? The Word of God. Mark? No, I was going to say time. Time and? What's What's a coordinate of time? Time and space. So his... Revelation has occurred in time and space, which is to say, in one word, history. history. Exactly. That the revelation has occurred in history. So the in here is referring to an historic continuum of revelation. But it is saying something more than that. In the prophets and in the sun. Do you see it? 
Yes. Yes. You see, the revelation has come into the person of the recipient, into the person of the prophet, into the person of the son. The revelation is not only in time and space. It is in the individual who receives it. God's word was, shall we say, embodied in the recipient. Incarnated in the recipient. All right, I'm not going to press that too hard, but you see what is possible here. You see the depths of his mind in using this preposition in. He doesn't simply mean in time and space, though he does mean that. He means more than that. He means that the revelation has come into the personality and character of the person who received it, and from then, from that, it, from there, it has been recorded and written down. You see, the face of God comes personally into encounter or into the personality of the one receiving it. And that sweet fellowship results in the word of God dwelling in him so that he can write it down, so that he can pass it on, so that he can record it for our instruction. All right, now, what is the relation of the Old and the New Testament? They are both They are both divine revelation, they are both They are both the word of God. That is clear. God spoke in the prophets, God has spoken in the Son. They are both the speech of God. They are both divine revelation, word of God, self-disclosure of God to the authors. So why does our author think this way? He's a what? He's a... He's a believer. What kind of a believer is he? What label would you put on him? What label would you put on yourself? He's an Orthodox believer. He's an Orthodox what believer? He's an Orthodox Christian, correct? So he is not a what? A liberal. <laughs> <laughs> that is not that is true. He's not a liberal, but that's not what we want. What's the opposite of a Christian? Could be a pagan, but here we're talking about revelation. He's a Christian, he's not a Jew. He's not a Jew. Thank you, Felicia. Why couldn't he be a Jewish Christian? He may be, but you see, it makes him a Christian, not a Jew. All right. So a Christian says. Once again, we're talking about revelation here. A Christian says, a Christian says the New Testament is Word of God. A Jew says the New Testament 
and not the Word of God. A Christian says Christ is, yes, Christ is, Christ is Messiah. A Jew says Christ is not the Messiah. What's the point? The point is our author is claiming the Old Testament for the church. Not the synagogue. And the struggle between the church and the synagogue in the first century A.D. is right before you in this opening salvo from our author. The struggle of Paul being put out of the synagogues, the struggle of Paul shaking off the dust of his feet from the synagogue, the struggle of all the early apostles being rejected by the synagogue, on the ground that Jesus is not the Messiah, and the New Testament that you are claiming is not the Word of God. There is only one Word of God, and that's Tanakh. Torah, Nebi'im, Ketubim. The Old Testament, that is the Word of God. There is no Word of God beyond that. You are heretics. Jesus is a liar. He is not the Messiah. The synagogue stands staunchly against Christianity. And still does. Tragically, sinfully, unhappily. But this verse is consistent with Paul's entire missionary journey, though I don't think it's written by Paul, as we've indicated. But that consistency is present in the entire early church. The Old Testament is not the book of Judaism. The Old Testament is the book of Christianity. It belongs to the church of Jesus. It is our book. Now, some of you may be in churches where you never hear the Old Testament preached because there's kind of an implicit acknowledgement that the Old Testament is less than the New Testament and of less value. That is an insult to the Word of God. An insult to the Word of God. If the contemporary Christian pastor is not digging into the Old Testament and preaching it in terms of the way the New Testament writers see it, in terms of its fulfillment and completion in Christ, then he's not only lazy, but he's theologically uneducated. He needs to come to Northwest Theological Seminary. All right, that aside, you see the issue here. If there is an imbalance in the preaching of the modern evangelical conservative church where we preponderate to the New Testament and we neglect the old, we're out of accord with Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. You must balance. The pulpit must balance. The church must balance its message from Old and New Testament alike because God spoke in the prophets, even as he spoke 
in his son. Oh, but I like the New Testament. It's my favorite part of the Bible. All right, I'm not denying that it may be your favorite part of the Bible because you see Christ clearly there. And it's easy. Er. But the Old Testament is his very word. It's there for your instruction. When Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by divine inspiration. He is not talking about the New Testament. The only scripture he knows is the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about that. And so, we can't ignore the Old Testament as many dispensationalists do, as many uh, evangelical contemporary, you know, hotshot preachers do, as many topicalists do. We can't ignore it because to do so is to ignore the riches of God's revelation in Christ Jesus by way of anticipation. All right. Now, that brings us to that little prefix, poly. You may wonder, where did I get that? Well, if you turn back to your first page and you take a look at that Greek text that I printed there at the top of the page, polymeros, chi, polytropos. And you see the pi, omega, lambda, uh, upsilon there. It's transliterated P-O-L-Y in English. So there's the prefix in the Greek text, P-O-L-Y. What does poly mean? It means many. Very good. So what's a polytheist? Robert, what's a polytheist? Many gods. Many gods. What's polydactyl, okay? Okay. Loretta, what's polydactyl? Many fingers. Many fingers or many digits, yes, from... Second Samuel chapter 21 with the Philistine giant who had six fingers, polydactylism. We had a lengthy discussion about that last spring, didn't we? Oh, well, I didn't really mean to embarrass you, but I'm just kind of bringing things up from your past to remind you that you have seen these things in the scriptures before. All right. And polyglot. What's a polyglot? Many languages, correct. Many languages. Do any of you know a polyglot? We had one in this church until we got married last summer. George Young, who was a member of this church and moved to Twin Falls, Idaho, as an amazing polyglot, um, spoke French, Italian, Spanish, Malagasy. A little bit of German, as well as English and Portuguese. <laughs> Amazing guy. <laughs> All right. We're at the break time. Uh, maybe some of you knew George. You didn't know that about him. <laughs> he didn't wear it on his sleeve, <laughs> but, but he was an extremely capable linguist. And, in fact, wanted to learn Hebrew. He sat in a Hebrew class for a while and uh, wanted to learn Greek as well. <laughs> and has, has said uh, since he moved uh, east uh, to his beloved bride that he wants to continue to work on his Greek and, and Hebrew. <laughs> well, good for him. I hope, I hope he does. <laughs> All right. We'll take your break and we'll come back uh, to resume uh, our study of this first chapter. 
Now, as we begin, I want to make a response to a question which was raised last week at the end of the hour, a question about my suggestion that the epistle to the Hebrews was written before 64 A.D., and the obvious fact to which I was blindly oblivious <clears throat> that uh, Paul would have been dead before authoring the pastoral epistles on that construction. Now, I had suggested that the pastorals come after uh, his imprisonment at Rome, that initial Roman imprisonment, <clears throat> and a fourth missionary journey subsequent to that. <clears throat> but you can see the problem that Professor Sanborn raised, and rightly raised, uh, namely, that uh, that would have made the fourth missionary journey impossible. Well, it forced me to re-examine the chronology of Paul's career, and I want to refer to Ben Witherington's New Testament history in support of what I am going to propose. Uh, Witherington is a... Uh, fairly conservative and sound evangelical, a professor of New Testament, I believe still at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. But in that book, Ritherington suggests that Paul was under house arrest in Rome for two years, as Acts 28.30 tells us. And he places those two years at 60 to 62 A.D., then Witherington suggests that he was released in 62 and took his fourth missionary journey over the next two years, 62 to 64. He was rearrested as a result of the Neronian persecution in 64, the great fire of Rome, and imprisoned in Rome for the second time, at which time he wrote the pastoral epistles. 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, and was finally executed sometime between 66 and 68 A.D. Now, not only does that suggestion of Witherington bail me out of an embarrassing situation, but it has a ring of plausibility, because, of course, it is very plausible that Paul arrived in Rome uh, as early as 60 A.D. And if the pastorals do argue a fourth missionary journey, as I think they do, then Paul had to have been released sometime before the Neronian persecution and his own re-arrest and execution. So I think it fits. Uh, it is plausible. It is certainly worth uh, uh, considering. And as I say, um, Saves my hide. All right. Now on to the next section of the handout, the phrase sundry times and divers manners, which is the phrase from the King James Version. How many of you remember those storefronts in the old days, you know, back there in the dark ages when I was 10 years old? Uh, how many of you remember those storefronts that advertised sundries? Robert does. Have you seen sundries, Gabriel, on a, on a storefront? Really? 
You're joshing me. All right. Um, you can still see them in certain places of the Midwest and in certain kind of run-down towns, okay? It's an interesting thing, all right? Here's up on this storefront. Sundries. What did they mean, sundries? Robert, what did they mean? Uh, <laughs> I think it meant... Uh, uh, just a variety of exactly, categories. exactly. It was a way of saying they had a variety of goods for sale, and consequently they used this term sundries, which we don't use anymore. But sundry means various. Divers. What does divers mean? Yes, different or varying again. All right. So the writer is referring here to eras or periods of revelation. Now, if you were going to summarize the periods of divine revelation, what would you, how would you summarize the periods or the eras of divine revelation? What would the first one be? You're, you're thinking in terms of Luke 24. The first one would be... The law, wouldn't it? Okay, when we associate with, I heard it, Ben, did you say it? Who do we associate the law with? Moses. Moses, very good. All right. Now, the law is the first era of Revelation. What's the next one? The prophets. Very good. And who kind of kicks off the era of the prophets? Well, actually, non-writing prophets. Who kicks off the year of the prophets? Elijah. Yes, Elijah and Elisha. Before there are writing prophets, there are these, shall we say, <clears throat> verbal prophets, charismatic prophets. All right, the law prophets and the next era? No. The law, the prophets, and other the gospels, which we associated with Christ and the apostles. All right, we have these three major eras of revelation. God spoke the law through Moses. Actually, all of the books of the law come by inspiration through Moses. God speaks through the prophets, which includes the rest of the Old Testament revelation as a summary category. We're not ignoring the fact that there is poetic revelation there, okay? But we're placing it under this broad heading. And the Gospels, of course, which refer to the Gospel era, including the Gospels and the New Testament epistles. All right, so God is revealing himself in these eras. But is he always revealing himself by special revelation, revelatio specialis? For instance, between the death of Cain and Noah's entrance into the ark, does God speak any special revelation? 
No, there is no special revelation, no verbal revelation in that period between Cain and Noah. Or what about the period between the Tower of Babel in its confusion and the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees? Is there any special verbal revelation? Once again, no. So there is silence. There is no divine revelation in these periods. Or what would we say about Joseph and Jacob's descent into Egypt and the appearance of Moses 430 years later? 430 years of divine silence. No revelation. And finally, between Malachi and Matthew, any revelation? No revelation. In other words, there are demonstrable periods in the Old Testament eras in which God does not speak a word, a verbal word of revelation into time and space history. He is silent. He does not speak. And so what about the apostles? From the death of the apostles to the parousia, to the second coming of Christ. Any special divine revelation? No, I think not, but I want to uh, reinforce that. I'm just establishing the fact that God's silence, God not giving a divine word of special revelation, is a pattern in the history of his giving his word. In fact, if you notice, the eras of revelation, the era of Moses and the law, is an era of miracles, Virtually no miracles outside of this era. The era of the inauguration of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, is also an era of miracles. Outside of that era, virtually no miracles. And the era of the revelation in the Gospels is an era of miracles. Outside of that era, no miracles. Oh, Denison, you're taking all the fun away. Well, what is a miracle? If you got miracle whip, a miracle mile, and you missed running into the back end of that SUV and you say it's a miracle, what are you talking about? Are you talking about what the Bible's talking about when it calls something a miracle? Are you talking about Lazarus four days stinking dead in his tomb with a stone rolled over the opening and him walking out? Is that what you're talking about? Is that the kind of word you're defining when you say miracle whip salad dressing? Or the birth of a baby is a miracle? How many hundreds of them my wife delivered or saw delivered and she said, I haven't seen a miracle yet. It's all a natural process. Or Jesus walking on water? When was the last time you saw anybody walk across Lake Union without sinking? With no sky hook on them? All right. 
You understand what C.S. Lewis drives you to, if you've ever read Lewis's book, Miracles. You understand what Lewis is driving you to, to think about the particular special character of a biblical miracle. And don't cheapen the word by saying special providences. No, I'm not denying that God specially may provide for you and you didn't run into the back end of the SUV. I don't deny that. Or that that birth of that child might have been particularly difficult and God in his special care enabled you to deliver a healthy child, breach or whatever the situation happened to be. Septicemia, whatever. Okay. But all of that was a natural process. In other words, the baby didn't leap through your uterus and appear on the table. Those things don't happen. Maybe you wish it would, but it <laughs> my sympathies to you. <laughs> yes, I, I, I remember the first time I was allowed into the delivery room, and I not only had a great deal more appreciation for my wife, but I enjoyed being a part of the actual delivery process for the first time. My first two children I wasn't allowed in. It was in the days when we were banned. And uh, so the last two, it was a it was a great delight for me to be there with my wife. Uh, yes, David. Uh, on special revelation, Jude fourteen says Enoch, the son from Adam, prophesied about these men. So Enoch is prophesying. Good for you. You you, you caught me up again. <laughs> yes, Enoch does prophesy. There is a special word of revelation from Enoch, so I've got to modify that one. <laughs> Thank you, David. All right, now the point here is to notice the contigu- contiguity, that is, the fact that miracles don't appear willy-nilly. There are no miracles in this era. Now that we have to say Cain to Seth and then Seth to Noah, there are no miracles in this era. There are no miracles in this era. Where God is silenced, there are no miracles. So, if we say that miracles have ceased since the death of the apostles and there's no miracles in this era, it's because there's no special revelation in this era. Because as chapter 2, verse 4 of the epistle to Hebrews will teach us, the miracles are a witnessing sign to the revelation. They are an attestation of the revelation. Jesus makes this point to Nicodemus. Or actually, Nicodemus observes it when he comes to Jesus. We know that you are a teacher come from God, Nicodemus says, John chapter 3. How does Nicodemus know Jesus is a teacher sent from God? Because nobody could do these miracles that you do unless God were with him. We know that you didn't come from Satan because Satan can't do this. Or do you believe Satan can do a miracle? Ooh, ooh, not even at the end of the age, lying wonders, lying wonders. He cannot do it because that would give a creature the power that belongs only to the creator. And my glory, I will not give to another. You got a tiger by the tail. If you can say. And believe that Satan can work a bona fide miracle. He can raise a dead body for days. If he can do that, you don't know Jesus of Nazareth isn't a devil incarnate. What does he say to you? 
If I, by the finger of God, cast out Satan, you know that the kingdom of heaven, because the stronger man has come. Jesus is telling you on the basis of the credibility of the evidence right in front of your face that he alone can do what Satan cannot do. For if Satan could do what Jesus as God could do, then you'll never be able to distinguish, as Nicodemus said. Nicodemus says, we know you are a teacher sent from God. How did he know that? Because no one can do what you do unless God. He didn't say, we know you're a devil come from hell. He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God because you do miracles. Miracles are the ID card of a messenger from God. There it is. There's my identification card. I'm a miracle worker. That means God has sent me. The devil doesn't have ID cards for his imps. Except to delude you, to seduce you, to tempt you. But he can't do a bona fide miracle. All right, well... As we notice this pattern of the fact that the miracles go along with the revelation, the author of Hebrews makes this pattern clear in the relationship between chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 2, verse 4. I want to go into further detail on that a little later. But right now, let's ask about the other part of this uh, phrase, sundry times and divers manners. We've talked about the eras, the times of revelation. Now let's talk about the divers manners. How many differing ways did God reveal himself? Name one. Reveal himself through? Visions. Visions, good. What else? Angels. Okay, what else? Speech. Dreams. What else? Appearances of angels. Appearances, manifestations of angels. Okay, those are going to, that's that's not verbal revelation per se. That's actually theophonic revelation. That's a, an appearance of God. <clears throat> All right, we have poetry. Okay, we have prophetic genre. We have narrative or historical drama or or prose. We have parables. We have epistolary revelation. All right, we have a variety of revelatory manners in which God revealed. It's not just one monolithic style of revelation. There are multiple ways. So let's line out the relationships in this paradigm which our author is proposing in verses 1 to 2a. Notice, Ben, I'm not going to use the word contrast again. I understand what is meant by that term contrast, but I'm very sensitive to placing a contrast between the Old and New Testament, which suggests a difference in emphasis. Now, that may not be what any of you mean by that term contrast, but the dispensationalist does, and I want to stay away from it. You understand why? Contrast means a difference in kind, a discontinuity. In fact, a radical discontinuity. And so I want to avoid it. So I want to use this term relational paradigm. 
All right, let's begin to look at the words or the phrases in these uh, uh, in this uh, first two verses, and we notice the relationship between long ago and the last days. Now, if you look at the first page of the handout, you can actually see in the second line on the left-hand side the Greek words for last days. Eskatu ton hemeron. Eskatu. If I translate it, literate that into English, here's what that Greek word would look like. From which? We get the word eschatological. There it is. It's right there in the text. You see, I didn't invent the word. It comes out of the vocabulary of the inspired New Testament writers. Not just the writer of Hebrews, but Paul and Jesus and others. There it is in the Greek. All right, so we have this contrast going back to page two of your handout. We have this contrast between time long ago and time last days or past time and present time or the then time and the now time. Now, the second relational expression here, the recipients of the revelation. What is the relationship here? The recipients are the fathers versus us. Okay, the recipients, the fathers and related to us. The instruments of the revelation. Instruments. Prophets, good Marge, and the Son. Very good. Modes of revelation. Modes of revelation. Various ways. Various and sundry. Okay, various and sundry. Versus or related to the sound. How many ways? Very good. One way. Understood. It's understood. It doesn't express it, but it is implicit. Various and sundry ways over against the one way that has come through the sun. And I'm going to add to this a progression, a relational progression. Now, this is dovetailing or building upon what we already described as the former days and the last days. But I'm going to put labels on this. The progression is between the protological revelation... And the eschatological revelation. He uses that term eschatu to alert us to the finality of the revelation that has come in the sun. So the former or the earlier, the beginning revelation is related to the final or last revelation, the protological Related to the eschatological. 
All right, well, the eschatological days mark the eschatological era and the finality of redemption. So, are there any redemptive or saving events yet to be revealed? Any redemptive or saving events yet to be revealed, Marge? No. Any redemptive saving events to be performed in the future? Redemptive, redemptive event. Saving event. No. All right, you're all seeing that the finality of redemption is complete. It is finished. It has been finalized, eschatologically finalized. Okay, the finality of the eschatu, the eschatological days, is a finality of the redemption that has occurred in those days, which drives us to think about Jewish eschatology and Christian eschatology. All right, now notice on your handout, if you will do what I could not do with my computer, if you will draw a line underneath present and across your page, underneath future appearance of the Messiah, and do the same thing under Christian eschatology, just draw a straight line from future appearance of the Messiah to the present, and then put a little arrow to the right in the middle of the blank part of that line, between present and future, put a right-hand-facing arrow. And between Messiah and present, put a right-hand-facing arrow. Now, the reason I want you to draw the straight line with the arrow is I'm trying to schematically represent the line of history. And how does a Jew think about eschatology in terms of the line of history? The Jew thinks about the present resulting in a future eschatological age. Sometime way down the road in the future, something that hasn't happened yet, the Messiah will appear, the age of salvation will dawn, and ethnic Israel, nationalistic Israel, will be restored in glory to Palestine to rule the world. Right? That is the Jewish eschatological paradigm. It's the eschatological paradigm of Judaism in Jesus' day. It's what he was brought up to believe in the synagogues by the rabbis. He didn't believe it, as the New Testament synoptic gospels tell you, but nonetheless, that's what he was told. And it's probably one of the things he was talking about with the rabbis when he was 12 years old in the temple, trying to persuade them that they had it backwards. Because Christian eschatology is that the future has already entered into the present. What the Jew thought was future has come into the present, now our past, but into the present. With the appearance of the Messiah, the Christ, the age of salvation has arrived, and the Israel of God, as Paul puts it in Galatians 16, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, the Israel of God has been revealed. So that the future now dominates the present for the Christian. You see the reversal? You see the significance of the reversal? 
The eschatological has arrived now. That's what he's telling you right there in that verse when he says in these eschatological days. These eschatological days, whether we dated 62 A.D., whether we dated 50 A.D., whether we dated 64 A.D., he's saying that in the first century, the eschatological days, the eschatological era, the eschatological time has come. Not the future, per se, but the present. Now, he's not denying that there is a future consummation, resurrection of the dead, and judgment. But he's telling you, unlike Judaism, that the future has moved into the present because of Christ moving into the present, being incarnate in the present. For what happened to Christ? All the eschatological things happened to Christ, didn't it? He was raised from the dead, which was a future event. He's gone to heaven, which was a future event. He's seated in glory, which was a future event. You see, everything that we think is still future is past to him. It's already happened to him. He's accomplished eschatology by his life, death, and resurrection. And so he's telling his church, my eschatology informs your life informs your faith, informs the way you live. What has happened to me changes the way you act. That's weird, Denison. How can the future in the present change the way I act? Because Jesus brought the future to your present so that you can live in him. In him, seated in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, you've been raised up together with him already. You have been brought into the glory of the Son, that where he is, you may be also, and you are already there, because he saved your soul and took you there in the spirit with him. Yes, that'll change the way you live. Oh, you'll struggle. You won't be perfect, but it'll change the way you live once you consciously understand that that's where your position is. You're already positioned with the Son of God in heaven at the right hand of glory if you believe on him and have been united wonderfully to him by grace through faith. That's your great life. All right, now, this change in eschatological perspective is a revolution in the Christian church. It is what changes the Apostle Paul and stops him dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Because, you see, when Saul of Tarsus is walking up that path to Damascus, he's walking up as a rabbinical Jew. And he says, "Ha Jesus can't be the Messiah. He can't be the Savior. He can't be any. He's a fraud. He's a fake. He's a heretic. He can't be any of that because the resurrection is going to happen way down at the end of the history. And what happens? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And there's the resurrection right in front of his face, right in front of his face. I thought resurrection was way down the road. Lord, who art thou? 
So all you're looking at, resurrection. Resurrection in the midst of history. Resurrection in your present. Resurrection is blinding you. Resurrection has got you laying and groveling in the dust. Resurrection has stopped you dead in your tracks. And now, Saul of Tarsus, I want you to be Paul, my apostle. I'm changing your name because I've changed your nature, because resurrection has altered your whole perspective. Eschatology of the future has come into the present, and now eschatology dominates your life, Paul. Go, preach it to the nations. You see how marvelously God planned this this brilliant student of Gamaliel, who sat at the feet of the rabbis, who was steeped in the lore of Judaism and the delay of eschatology, the the eschatology remote and far distant in the future, and God stops him in his tracks. And he takes all of that background that was in that mind and heart of that Jewish Pharisee, that Hebrew, the Hebrews as he calls himself, and he commissions him and changes him, transforms him, regenerates him, makes him an altogether new creature by raising him from the dead and causing him to see the eschatological Christ alive and seated in glory. That'll preach. That'll preach. That takes three years to get it under my belt, but that'll preach. And off he goes with his eschatological message because, you see, he's looked at the face of it. He's seen it in front of his eyes. And Saul of Tarsus can be Saul of Tarsus no more. He must be Paul, the bond servant of the eschatological Christ. All right, so this switch, this switch in eschatological perspective, crucial to understanding what's going on in the New Testament era, not only with Jesus as he proclaims it, but the apostles as they possess it, when Paul, as he uh, is stopped and changed by it and becomes the greatest apostle to the nations as a result of it. That Jewish eschatological line is still present, not only in Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, but it is still present in Christian circles, tragically, ironically, wrongly. This is dispensational premillennialism. It is a form of Jewish eschatology. And it is as wrong-headed now as it was when it was born in the 19th century. It is a return to a Jewish perspective on the future of the world. And it is, insofar as it is committed to this, unchristian. Now, I'm not calling dispensationalists unchristian. I'm calling the system unchristian. Because, you see, they're not reading the New Testament in terms of the eschatological arrival. Well, eschatological revelation also affects miraculous signs and wonders. That is, the attesting signs of that revelation. As the writer says in verse 4 of chapter 2, these wonders, miraculous signs and wonders, bear witness to the revelation. So, we have the finality of the revelation in chapter 1, verse 2a, the eschatological days and its final finality of God has spoken. 
And by parallel reasoning, we have the finality of the charismata in chapter 2, verse 4. The two go together. Once and for all, finished, complete, final revelation in the Son, chapter 1, verse 2a. Once and for all, finished, complete, and final attestation of revelation in miraculous signs and wonders, chapter 2, verse 4. Ergo, therefore, no more special revelation. That's what he's saying in chapter 1, verse 2a. And no more charismata, no more miracles, no more signs and wonders in chapter 2, verse 4. The cessation of revelation, because it is complete and final in the sun. It is eschatological in the sun. Cessation of charismata because they are no longer needed in attestation to a no longer needed revelation, chapter 2, verse 4. The charismatic movement claims what Hebrews denies. They claim further special revelation and further miraculous attestation. The charismatic movement on this point is unbiblical, based upon a proper understanding of Hebrews chapter 1 to A and chapter 2 verse 4. Now they won't believe this from you. Many times I went to their meetings, immersed myself in their movement, attempted to understand what they were about, and recoiled. Not only in horror from what they were claiming, but also from the abominable interpretation of Scripture which they promoted. I don't deny the redemption of the souls of many in the charismatic movement who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity, but their claim to be a part of ongoing special divine revelations which have the authority of the very inspired Word of God is a heretical claim, and they must be regarded in that light. And their claim to have the special charismata of the New Testament era and to be able to perform miracles, including multiplying the spaghetti in your colander when you don't have enough for your guests, is absolute rubbish. Nonsense. I repeat, there are many fine, devout Christians in the charismatic movement, but they are there in spite of the doctrine of the movement, not because of it. And when we place them against the standard of what the word of God says, we say with all respect to them, please, brothers and sisters, come out and repent. This is not what the Bible is teaching you. Your life is to be centered not upon special revelations that you receive, not upon charismatic experience or miraculous gifts which you think you have, but your life is to be centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the gift of the Spirit to you and in you. All right, let's take a look at what Voss says on this particular issue of ongoing special revelations. I'm going to read these paragraphs myself, and I'm going to stop and pause to comment on them as we go. I want you to interrupt me if you have any questions because you can't understand what he's saying. It won't be the first time that persons reading boss can't understand what he's saying. Perfectly obvious to me, but nonetheless. 
having spent almost 40 years of my life reading him, I do have a bit of an advantage. All right, let's begin with the longest quote. The revelation of God. Okay, the word of God. Self-disclosure of God. Being not subjective and individual in nature. That is, it wasn't given to you so that you can have it as a private revelation, private reserve. No, no. Objective. And addressed to the human race as a whole. That was the goal of God's revelation. That it would be objectively addressed to the human race as a whole. It is but natural that this revelation should be embedded in the channels of the great objective history of redemption. That is going to be embedded in the life of Abraham and Moses and Noah and Joshua and Joseph and Moses, etc., etc., on down to the history of redemption. This revelation is going to be objectively embedded in these channels of the history of redemption and extend no further than this. Extend no further than the history of redemption. In other words, when the history of redemption is completed, then the revelation will cease because it had served its purpose. It has reached the human race as a whole, Jew and Gentile alike. In point of fact, we see that when the finished salvation worked out among Israel is stripped of its particularistic form, that is the form that is peculiar to Israel, to extend now to all nations, not just to Israel, but to the world. To Jew and Gentile alike, at the same moment, at the same moment when that transition occurs, the completed, the finished oracles of God, the word of God, are given to the human race as a whole to be henceforth subjectively studied and appropriated. There's your revelation. He's given you the book. You don't need any extra special revelations because all you need is here. It is completely sufficient for your life, salvation, and practice. That's what Voss is saying. When one is completed, the other is completed. When the revelation is completed and the history of redemption comes to an end in terms of the redemptive acts being completed, then the recording of those acts and scripturation of those acts is all you need. There's the word of God. That's what you look to for special revelation. It is. And here's the piece de resistance in this quote. Here is the kicker. Here's the clincher. It is as unreasonable to expect revelations after the close of the apostolic age as it would be to think that the great saving facts of that period can be indefinitely increased and repeated. It is as absurd for you to think that there are going to be yet more revelations as it is for you to think that there are going to be yet more saving events. And all of you nodded your heads when I asked, are there any more saving events to occur? And you said, no. That's what boss is saying right there. But he's saying it is unreasonable to even expect it. When the saving events are finished, the revelation is finished. God has said all he needs to say on the matter. Jesus has done all he needs to do on the matter. Or is there something that you think Jesus needs to do yet that he didn't do when he was here? Tell me what it is. Huh? Come on. Tell me. Tell me. Jesus needs to do something more for you? Give you more spaghetti in your colander? Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. You see how we trivialize. We cheapen 
gospel and the work of Christ. How many of those silly things I've gone through when they passed around the wine and everybody had enough to drink and had enough spaghetti and had this and everything, multiplying coffee cups and everything. This is absurd. Absurd trivialization. Petty. Petty. No miracles in the New Testament like that. Oh, you say the wedding of Canaan. No, you're missing the point. Completely missing the point. But that's another subject. All right, next, next quotation. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Ah, I think we've been studying that. Okay, here is Vaugh saying, in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, the new dispensation appears as final, eschatological, finality. And this applies likewise to the revelation introducing it. It is not one new disclosure to be followed by others, but the consummate disclosure, the final disclosure, beyond which nothing is expected. Notice the clincher here. Here is the key. After speech in a son, qualitatively so-called, no higher speech were possible. What greater spokesman do you look for than the incarnate Son of God? And once once he has spoken, once he has said all that is necessary to be said, what more do you need to have said to you? The only thing you need to have said to you is, Come, ye blessed of my Father, entrance into the glory that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's all you need to have said to you. Jesus, I want to sit down at your feet. That's all I want to have. But I don't need you to tell me anything that you haven't already told me here. I am content with what you've said, Lord. That is sufficient. The B-I-B-L-B, Billy, that, that's enough for me. You see, that, that, I stake my stand right there on the Protestant doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The next quote from Voss. The revelation of the new covenant is not only better comparatively speaking, that is in comparison with the old covenant revelation, it is final and eternal because delivered in a son than whom God could send no higher revealer. He couldn't speak out of any higher person in the whole eschaton than through his only begotten, dearly beloved son. I will send them my son. Surely they will hear him. And as if Voss was not enough for us in those stunning quotations that I just read to you. Oh, go back and think about the depth of what he said there. But it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers' manners. I wonder where they got that. To reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. 
That's the confessional standard of the OP church, those of you who are OP. That's the confessional standards of the Presbyterian churches, those of you who are Presbyterian. That's the confessional standard of a Reformed church in the 17th century, which is simply saying what all the Reformed churches in the 16th and 17th century have said about the sufficiency and finality of revelation in the Word of God. This is a Reformed doctrine. Because it comes out of Hebrews 1 and 2 and 2, 4. It is a reformed doctrine because it is the Bible's doctrine. It is the teaching of the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews. We're not pouring cold water on charismatic parades. We're simply saying, step into the warm shower of the word of God and be content. To bathe yourself in that sweet, precious, and all-sufficient stream. You don't need nothing else, brother. Believe me. Sister, too. But there's the Roman Catholic doctrine of human traditions. Now, we're pushing towards the end, and so I'm going to stop here. But I want you to notice... Bring the outline back next week. We'll begin, we'll resume here next week. I want you to notice the similarity between the Roman Catholic Church and the charismatic movement. The modern charismatic movement takes a page out of the Roman Catholic medieval handbook. As I have said before, the first charismatic church is the Roman Catholic Church. Communion. From the late Dark Ages all the way through the Middle Ages, through the Reformation, they are a charismatic church. They believe in ongoing miracles. Every time you go to Mass in a Roman Catholic church, the miracle is performed. The miracle of changing the bread and the wine on the altar into the very body and blood of Christ. That is the heart of the Roman Catholic worship service. Miracles, ongoing miracles. Don't talk to me about Fatima or Guadalupe or any other shrine. They've already got them. Lords, no, they've already got them. Every time the Mass is served, they've got miracles going on. All right. Your reformers said no. Whether it was Luther, whether it was Zwingli, whether it was Calvin, whether it was Bullinger, whether it was Bootser, they all said no, because they had all been Catholics. They said, this is absurd. It's not biblical. Revelation has ceased. Miracles are over. So, the charismatic movement among Neo-Pentecostals, Pentecostals and Neo-Pentecostals, the charismatic movement of the late 19th century. Late 19th century is when it burst upon American evangelicalism. Charismatic movement took a page out of the Roman Catholic book. They just didn't want to be hierarchical and ceremonial. They wanted to be Appalachian, which is where it started started in Appalachia. All you Covenant College grads know all about that kind of snake handling stuff. All right. We'll pick up there next week, but I will field any questions or comments or objections that you may have.
You have every right to disagree with me, but you better find a text. Art. You referred to verse 2a. You know, he has spoken to us by his son. And you said that indicates the finality of Revelation. Well, we know from other parts of the Bible that Revelation was is final with the word. But those words by themselves don't seem to indicate whether or not there be further revelation also at these last times later. But I guess your point is that just the strength of the terminology, the, the style of the sentence? No, it's the connection of the last days with the sun. See, the finality of the eschatological days comes with the finality of the redemption or revelation through the sun. The two reinforce one another. So they will be final, but they're ongoing. The revelation that occurred in the last days is completed with the redemption that is testified to it. Okay. Now, that testimony is now here. It's not in an ongoing revelatory or redemptive paradigm. So as we say that the redemptive paradigm has ceased, it's been completed. So the revelatory paradigm has been completed. So the last, the adjective last for eschatos, eschatu, uh, is indicative of this whole finality of not only the era redemptively, but the uh, phenomena revelatorily. Benji? Um, does the statement in 2.4 about the testimony by signs and wonders, various miracles, etc., etc., I mean, does that, I don't have the Greek in front of me, but the way it's grouped together with the test of by the, the announcement of it by the Lord. Of course, it's accomplishment and announcement by the Lord combined then with this testimony. It's, it's this one big package that takes place all at once that is related to one another. It just seems to kind of reinforce what you're saying there. It's almost as if he's referring to this as a past group of events that they're now reflecting on as a second generation. I agree, but I won't push it too hard, partly because it's an argument from silence, but I do agree with the implication that you're saying. I think that in some ways we can even say that the pastorals record a time in which miracles have ceased. Well, and that's the other point, is in contrast to, say, Galatians, the first Corinthians, Correct. where he's appealing to miraculous activity that they themselves have seen, that's totally absent in this letter, aside from... Testimony. Seems to be. Yes. Oh, uh, Art, you already had one. Uh, let me take a, another one. I'll come back to you. Yes, go ahead. Are there not miracles in the book of Revelation? There are uh, miraculous signs at the second coming of Christ. Okay. Now, those are going to attest to his appearance at the end. All right. So, uh, but as far as the revelatory period is concerned, there's not going to be any additional revelation except the sound of the trumpet and the declaration that he's coming. Now, the wonders that uh, Satan and the beast out of the deep are indicated being performing are all deceptions. Notice the language there. They are all deceiving signs. They are not bona fide miracles. They are intended to fool you. Fraudulent. It's David Copperfield. Well, I'm not blaming David Copperfield for being demonic. But my, my point is, it's, it's, it's going to be sleight of hand. Okay, I'll see you next week. Now, oh, I'm sorry, Art. Let me come back to you for your other question. Or, or come on up afterwards, and, and I'll, I'll be glad to field it. Uh, you're welcome to take an extra copy of the handouts if you want to have uh, more, more copies, if there are any left. 
uh, but to remember to bring it back uh, for this last page, and we will pick up there.